as Nikki said so clearly and succinctly today, the retreat is dying and it's nearing its natural end. <clears throat> and it seems appropriate that the retreat should die given it's a retreat about dying and the benefits of maranasati, of mindfulness of death. And we've looked at it many different ways, reflecting about our own death or the death of others or the life and death of each moment and the liveness that comes when we're not dead. <clears throat> And, you know, a little today we're reflecting a little about any regrets or uh, I'm sorry's about our life. And I have, I have a lot of material about death, having taught it for many years. And, and I saw this cartoon that I have from the New York, it's a New Yorker cartoon. And it's got a older man lying there and it's like looks like his son holding his hand in his bed and he says and he's speaking to his son and it looks like you know he's on his way out at least in to my eye and and he says to his son he says he's holding his son's hand he said i should have brought i should have bought more crap <laughs> <laughs> And I and I and I so appreciate the the humor because of course that's not what we're supposed to say, but you know that's what the commercial world would hope we would say, right? At the end of our life. So the retreat is uh beginning to end in this form. Of course, it won't end for you at all, or for me, right? The retreat will continue because it will always be here with you. And um, the reality of death is just the most normal thing, right? It's life and death. It's in Eugene language, it's part of the deal. <clears throat> and it's part of impermanence. And the focus in Buddhism on Anicca, Dukkha, Nata, on the characteristics of reality uh, and of impermanence itself is one of the things that supports us fully being here fully live, living our, giving ourselves to life fully because it's impermanent. And it begins to slowly or patiently, hopefully, but you know, sometimes very quick, the learning, but, but usually the maturation of practice happens over time. And we all begin to mature in practice, so we begin to appreciate that this is it, right? This is our life. This is the real thing. 
The real thing is not later, which our minds will often tell us, or the real thing didn't already happen. It was real when it happened, but it's not here anymore. What was real before? What's real is this moment, really. And on a certain level, that's the whole show. And it can be humbling and daunting and take some getting used to. But it's also quite beautiful that we're here. And the word that I use a lot these days that is not very Buddhist, but I like it, is it just seems so magical that we're here at all. And, uh, and I've used the word mystery a lot. It's also mysterious, but somehow magical captures the something about the magical bubbliness of aliveness and the fact that we're all here, that there's all these different individual consciousnesses sitting here right now, all with their own life. And they're separate and they're not separate. And it's kind of wild that way, or paradoxical. And really looking, reflecting, studying, contemplating death. Beautiful practice and really, I don't think of it as a bad thing. And there's, it's, a, it's a loss when people die, no, no doubt about it. And, it'll, and we will lose a lot when we die, right? We'll lose everything. But so far, human beings have all successfully died <laughs> up until this time. So, you know, I mean, I could say good luck, but I think it's a... It's a, it's a it's a no-brainer in Eugene Dharma language. But there are contemplations, there are impacts that come with contemplating death and really looking at our life and how do we live our life given that it's temporary, it's for a while, it's really right now. Norman Cousins says, he says, death is not the greatest loss in life. Death is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss is what dies inside while we live. And we all know that in some way, shape, or form, where we have all turned away from ourselves or cut off from ourselves or gotten separated from the aliveness that's here and the Really, I could use a lot of different words. The purity, which is not a word I usually use, but it's what's coming. The purity of what's here, or the innocence what's here, or the, or the, the, the numinousness of what's here, the, the love and the awareness and the magic of the whole show that's sitting in each seat. And so the, the contemplation of death starts to shift our perspective about life, about what does it mean to have a life, live a life. 
And of course, the practice of mindfulness and the support of all the Buddhist teachings are then woven into that contemplation so that we're also mindful of any ways that our mind might, that the judging mind might arise to judge us because we're going to die or because we did or didn't do something while we lived. So we can, don't have to be at the mercy of the self-judgment, which is not a skillful mind to believe, mostly because it's not true. So um, Nikki was talking about the deathless, and I, I appreciate that term, especially if we're talking about death. So here the deathless is positive as one of the goals of Dharma practice. The deathless, I wrote deathless, unconditioned by death. That's such an interesting concept that something could be unconditioned by death, not conditioned. And of course, then the other words we use are enlightenment or awakening or liberation or freedom or love or, or sure heart's release. And they're all beautiful, beautiful ways to point at this human potential that's sitting here that we all know, that we've all tasted, that brings us here, right? And that there's more to discover. And so um, I was, I found a, a short writing by uh, um, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu that I always appreciated. It's not so short, actually, there's a number of pages to it, but I'm, I'm going to edit some of what he says. And um, the name of it is Nibbana for Everyone. Okay? Right? Nibbana is the classic Pali word for the deathless or freedom or awakening, right? Nibbana for everyone. He's a very cool guy that way to speak about it in this um, very inclusive way because he's pointing to something we all already have a taste of. And here's what here's some of the things he says in this short pamphlet, which I think you can just go online and get it these days, like everything in Buddhism. Um, he, says, uh, he says, without Nibbana, Buddhism would be as good as dead. When nobody is interested in Nibbana, then nobody is genuinely interested in Buddhism. Right? And so he's pointing at something about what Buddhism is pointing to in all its teachings is about freedom or the deathless, right? And he, and he said when he grew up, the word Nibbana was often equated with the word death in Thailand. So he didn't understand, he said there was a lot of misunderstanding because that was his association with Nibbana. And he said, he said, I myself was taught this way when I was a child. And when I became a bhikkhu, a, pra a formal practitioner, I still understood it this way and told my friends and stu students about it. 
only when I could study the original Pali text did I discover that Nibbana was a whole other matter than death. Instead, it's a kind of life that knows no death. It's the deathless. It's a kind of life that knows no death. Nibbana is the thing that sustains life, thus preventing death. It itself can never die, although the body must eventually die. And he goes on to explain his understanding of Nibbana, which is the end of dukkha, right? And he says, Nibbana is the coolness which results from the quenching or the release of the kalesas, of the defilements, of the obscurations, or even more simply put, the letting go of greed, hate, delusion. The, the clinging and pushing away of our reality. And that when that cools or relaxes, there is some taste of nibbana. <clears throat> he says, any of the defilements which have arisen, arisen cease when their causes and conditions are finished. Although it may be a temporary quenching, merely a temporary coolness, it still means nibbana, right? Even if only temporarily. Thus, there's a temporary nibbana for those who still have some defilements that they can't avoid. This indeed is, this indeed is a tempor temporary nibbana which sustains the lives of beings who are still involved with life. Anyone can see that if the defilements would exist day and night, meaning without end, you couldn't endure it. If it didn't die, if it didn't go away for even a little bit, you would go crazy and then die then, right? You ought to consider carefully the fact that life can survive only because there are periods when the defilements don't roast it. Right? When we're free of our grasping, of our aversion, of our anger, of our hatred. Right? But we don't pay attention. It's like, oh, then everything's fine. Right? We don't pay attention to those states of consciousness he's pointing at and calling cool. Right? In other words, he doesn't... One of the things we learn to start to do is pay attention to the wanting and grasping and clinging and holding on, pushing away and denying and reacting to. But when it all relaxes, paying attention to that state of consciousness, which is no big deal on a certain level, but it's free of this or that, here or there, now and then. It just is. Why don't we, he goes on to say, why don't we understand and feel thankful for this kind of nibbana a little? We're lucky that the instincts can manage by themselves. Our instincts have this virtue built in. They search for periods of times 
time sufficiently free from defilement or free from thirst to maintain life. Whatever, whenever there is freedom and voidness, there is always this little nibbana until we know how to make it permanent or perfect the nibbana of an arahant or an enlightened one. Right? And so he's beautifully talking about the day-to-day, right? And this is everyday nibbana. This is nibbana for everyone, pointing how it's already here. And, he, he, and then he's associating nibbana with the deathless and peace, safety, health, freedom, emancipation, on and on. And he says, whenever finding coolness in your experience, mark that coolness firmly in your heart and breathe in and out. Breathing in is cool, breathing out is cool. It's a very hip way to say it. Right? Breathing in is cool, breathing out is cool. In cool, out cool. Do this for a little while. This is an excellent lesson which will help you become a Nibbana Akamo, which means a lover of Nibbana more quickly. And in conclusion, he says, Nibbana. It is the coolness and deathlessness which is full of life. The coolness and deathlessness which is full of life. So part of what we've pointed at this week is a Nietzsche of impermanence, of change, of the ungraspability of any moment because it's all arising and passing. And it's very simple. It's so, it's so simple, the simplicity is what's difficult. Generally, we want something, and this is not a thing. It's life in its realness which is not a thing it's not you know it's not you can't just grab it and hold on to it forever it's more magical than that and but it doesn't mean that we're not human beings and so I always appreciate when Buddhist teachers or teachings acknowledge the dukkha of impermanence. That, oh, we do want things, people, our lives, the good things to stay. We don't want everything to change all the time. And I was looking at one of my teachers, Ryokan, a Japanese Zen master from about 300 years ago, something like that. And there's some poems, and he writes beautiful poems, Ryokan, and he's, he's just a bodhisattva from heaven, really. If you, if you want to read a great book, read One Robe, One Bowl. One Robe, One Bowl, that's Ryokan, just beautiful. And, uh, and 
Rio Khan was a really interesting real person. So he was real enough, so, and he was a monastic for many, many years, a priest, Zen priest, and spends a lot of time alone, a lot of time, you know, just hanging out with the plants and the moon and getting, there's, there's a, a great story about his little, he's got some little hut in the mountains and somebody came and stole his stuff, which is not a lot of stuff, believe me, but stole his stuff. And then he writes a poem. He says, um, the moon in the window, the thief left it behind. I mean, I mean, you know, that's, that's realization. That's really living in the moment. And, and, you know, he wasn't happy about the thief, but it didn't take away his love of what was right here, or at least his appreciation of it. But uh, one of the interesting things, because I've read a lot about Ryokan, he, in the end of his life, he falls in love with a, a, a nun, a somewhat younger nun than him, and they have this romantic relationship it, it looks totally platonic, but but it was serious love affair of the heart, and they they loved each other, and so there's this little exchange of poems as he's dying, and he writes he wrote when when I sighed, the one I longed for has fin- finally come. With her now I have all that I need. Right, she's coming to his hut and sees him. And then she writes back, because the two of them are beautiful together. She says, we monastics are said to overcome the realm of life and death. We monastics are said to overcome the realm of life and death. Yet I cannot bear the sorrow of our parting. Right, so the heartfulness is alive, is part of the reality and part of practice, and not what we get rid of, but what we live with and what we practice with. And then he writes his last poem to her. Everywhere you look, everywhere you look, the crimson leaves scatter. Everywhere you look, the crimson leaves scatter, one by one, front and back. Right? And so being real together and loving each other and expressing it and living it even with the grief of parting and the truth of it. And so there's another teaching that I like to tie in when we look at this teaching of impermanence and that everything is arising and passing, arising and passing, arising and passing and that it's just a moment, and it's just a moment, and that's all true. And there's a teaching from Bhante Gunaratna, and who's written, it's a, I have the little book here, it's ancient that I have, you know, I I looked at the price, was like $2, which you can't get a book for $2 anymore, but it's an old little book of his, I think it's just called Mindfulness of Death, or or Buddhist Contemplation of Death. And in it, he he talks about another law, a parallel law to the law of impermanence. He says, there is yet another law of understanding which helps in the understanding of death. It is the law of becoming 
or bhava, 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 which is a um, corollary to the law of change or nietzsche. The law of becoming, like the law of change, is constantly at work and applies to everything. The law of becoming constantly at work and applies to everything. While the law of change states that nothing is permanent but ever-changing, the law of becoming states that every the law of becoming states that everything is always in the process of changing into something else. Not only is everything changing into something else, but the nature of that change is a process of becoming something else, however short or long the process may be. Briefly put, the law of becoming is this. Nothing is, but is becoming. Nothing is, but is becoming. A ceaseless becoming is the feature of all things. Now that's a beautiful understanding of reality. And it's not a contradiction of the law of change or everything arising and passing. They're both true. And that's the Dharma, in my view, my understanding. It's this paradoxical Dharma that expands our heart and mind, our perspective beyond this or that, right or wrong, yes or no, change or no change, right? Or gone or becoming, it's both. And really what I suggest for all of us is look at your own experience directly if it's not paradoxically, magically alive. So one of the benefits of Maranasati practice that can come, and we've heard it here many different ways already for many of us, is the great fullness of the Dharma, the great fullness of practice. And so gratitude is part of what comes. And I personally, this I'm not quoting the Buddha now, but I personally think of gratitude as the fifth Brahma-vihara, right? The Brahma-vihara are the divine abodes of, of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. And if, if, if I get my say, it's going to include gratitude also. It's one of the Brahma. It's, one of, it's a beautiful state of heart and mind. Uh, and I so appreciate the gratefulness that can come when we're here and when we see all is given. And one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, he once said, he said, when you're in touch with gratitude, you're in touch with reality. And that's a beautiful understanding. And there are different ways to understand how that happens and how we can practice with the change and the rising and passing and becoming that is part of reality and see how we can live lives that are thankful 
for the magic of the aliveness that is sitting in each seat, right? That we often don't pay attention to so much or we forget about or some, something special reminds us, but we forget, oh, it's here right now. It's totally magical to be alive and it won't be here forever. So a young Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher, he said, he talked about how to live a life of practice that appreciates life and practice and impermanence. And he says, he says one way to practice and get ready for one's death is not to be attached to relatives or friends or personal belongings. And he said one way to come to this freedom, he said, is use the things you are attached to as often as you can in this lifetime. So at death you think, I can't take this with me, but I'm satisfied because I used it often in this life, so it is okay to let go of it. Now that's not a usual Buddhist perspective, but I appreciate the out-of-the-box Buddhist perspectives personally. Right. He, he told a number of stories, it said here in this article, um, in which using up whatever you have, are given provided a very sensible spin on the practice of asceticism. Live your life, he said. Live it fully, and then you can let go of it. And then there's a slightly more fierce version of how to practice with death and impermanence. And, and it's from um, a Western teacher. And she says, she says, my friends, let's grow up. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. Everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. And she keeps it with a ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give it, give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for safe passage. There isn't one anyways. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. 
Let, let's dance the wild dance of no hope. It's from Jennifer Wellwood. And it's, it's really very simple what she's saying in kind of a fierce bikini warrior mode, which is, this is reality. What happens if we come into harmony with the way things are? Which we all know. And, and if we pretend we know or don't know, reality's still going to do its thing because we're not in control of reality. So another way we can begin to wake up and appreciate what's been given. This is from Joko Beck. She says, we can think of gratefulness and practice as a recognition of what is already here. That as we are present, aware, open, intimate with ourselves and our environment, we discover that gratitude is part of our experience. Being present is the gateway to gratitude. Because what, what's here? I mean, even what, what hasn't been given, right? Where did we get our thoughts or the capacity to think or see or taste or touch or smell or feel or experience? We forget that it's all been given somehow because it's so normal but it won't be here forever. It won't stay given in this way, shape, or form forever. She says, being present is the gateway to gratitude. One of the great gifts of this practice is that we do not take anything for granted. Not even the usual because the usual is actually also unusual. We don't take anything for granted. We don't know what will happen next. We're grateful with new eyes when we don't know what will happen next. <clears throat> and this is, this is um, echoed by Brother David Stendelrost. Uh, Benedictine monk who wrote, he's written books on gratefulness. He says, look closely and you will find that people are happy because they are grateful. The opposite of gratefulness is just taking everything for granted. When we don't take it for granted, something in us knows it's just given for a moment. And we don't know how long it, any of it will last or what it will become in the next moment. And it's really a blessing when that state of heart and mind is present. And I'm not saying, okay, it's present every moment, da-da-da-da-da, no, it comes and goes, and you know, back and forth. And, but when I experience that, and I have some of that, it's just so beautiful to be alive. And it doesn't matter much what's happening because it's the happening that one is grateful for, not the things that are happening as much. 
and the things can be nice too. I, I like things, and you know, I live um, I live next to Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, and and I'm a I'm a city guy by birth and history, right? I was born in Detroit, and I upgraded to New York, you know, so. And uh, I lived in the country for a few years on a commune, uh, but that was not, not and I, it was good, I learned a lot, but it was like, get me back to a city. And San Francisco was the closest city I could find. That was a little bit of a city. You know, when I came here, I thought, oh, this is just a beach town. I don't want to live here, I want a city. But I've gotten a little more comfortable with that after 30 or 40 years. But um, um, <laughs> now I got to remember what my point was going to be. <laughs> um, um, uh, but I lived next to Golden Gate Park, and after my accident, I had a long period where of recovery, and um, and I couldn't do much really for quite a while, and so I would walk in the park. That was, and it was a big deal even to walk in the park. Actually, to be honest, even going up and down steps, which I live on the third floor, going up and down steps, that was a challenge for quite a while. I couldn't, I had to be holding on to things to go up and down. And, uh, and then just walking in the park a little. And I've come to love the park and nature. And, and I walk there a lot. My wife also, we both walk together often after dinner at night. What park's relatively safe at night. And it's just amazing to see how beautiful it is all the time. And, and I know enough to know, oh, it's not just the park. It's my heart and mind that sees that way often. I just see, I see that it's brand new. And it's for, when it's brand new, it's just like, wow, look at that tree. And I'm like, seriously, not a tree guy. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, you know, I mean, I like bridges and stuff like that. <laughs> but it's like, wow, the trees. And even I was walking out the other day and it was, it was raining. And I just was just, oh, you just see the whole world keeps changing. And you can see it. At least I can see it sometimes, and it's so. And I just watch what it happens in my heart and mind with those eyes that are fresh, that are not bound to the past or yesterday or what I know about trees or plants or even the park. Because I used to go in nature plenty, but I didn't. Something's really changed now, and it's it's beautiful. <clears throat> And as Brother David Stendhal Ross says, he says, gratitude is the full response of the human heart to that which is gratuitous, to that which is what is given. And that's such a beautiful understanding of gratitude. Um, we are time, we're okay on time. Um, okay, I'm gonna go here. Here's a beautiful poem about gratitude, my favorite, I think. It begins, I thank you, I thank you, God, 
for most this amazing day. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and the blue true dream of sky and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I, who have died, am alive again today. And this is the son's birthday. And this is the, the birthday of life and of love and wings and of the gay great happening illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing any lifted from the no of all nothing How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing, any, lifted from the no of all no thing, human merely being, doubt, unimaginable you. And it's a capital Y-U. And then he ends, he says, Now the ears of my ears are awake, and the eyes of my eyes are open. From E.E. Cummings. So there's a joy that can come when we wake up and life and death are one of are the doorways to waking up are to seeing what's actually here who and what are we I mean who are we is a good question what are we what is this that we think feel taste touch smell what what it what what is that experiential reality that is sitting in each seat? <clears throat> Again, David Stendhal Rost, he says, as we learn to give thanks for all of life and death, as we learn to give thanks for all of life and death, for all this given for all of this given world of ours, we find a deep joy. It is the joy of trust, the joy of faith, in the faithfulness at the heart of all things. It is the joy of gratefulness in touch with the fullness of life. So I think I will end with a poem from Hakuin about us, about who and what we are. He says, all beings, all beings, all beings by nature are Buddha. All beings by nature are Buddha as ice by nature is water. All beings by nature are Buddha, as ice, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. How sad people ignore the near and search for truth afar. He says, those who listen to this truth even once and listen with a grateful heart, 
treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. Much more, those who turn about and bear witness to self-nature, self-nature that is no nature, go far beyond mere doctrine. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing right now? Is anything missing right now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place, the lotus land. This very body, the Buddha. Let's sit for a minute, please. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing right now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place, the lotus land. This very body, the Buddha. some time for walking practice before the last formal sip tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.